Have any of you come to the point where you have mourned the loss of innocence? You know what I mean? And I'm not, I'm not simply talking about your biological innocence here, though that is an innocence to hang on to as long as possible and something to be celebrated. But do you remember the first time that one of your friends betrayed you? It probably happened to most of us in, in elementary school, right? You were just going along. You thought everything was fine. You could just say whatever. You could talk to them. You could tell them what, what, what was on your mind or whatever. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of third grade show and tell, they just blurted out this deepest secret of your love for Missy across the room. <laughs> and at that moment, you, you realized... You really couldn't trust him anymore. You, you just couldn't put the kind of faith in that friend and maybe in friends in general that you thought you could. Innocence. Gone. I remember talking to a, a, a group of pastors. I was, I was fresh out of college. I had known these guys through college. Um, we were all working as interns, um, which is one step from out the door. That's what intern means. Interns mean you blow this, you're done. And we were all working as, as interns. We were sitting in a room. We were at a pastor's meeting, actually. And I was sitting in the room with a couple of guys. They had been friends in high school. I knew both of them in college and then as, as colleagues um, in pastoral ministry. And I remember listening to them talking smack about a, another pastor that we knew. And they were just, they were going on and really just raking this guy over the coals, who I understood to be a good friend of theirs. And I remember walking out of that room going, man, you can't trust those preachers. They'll talk to each other about you. And I remember thinking, I, I just, I can't extend to those guys the kind of information that they might use like this on me. Innocence, gone. There are very few people who are able to hang on to innocence all the way to adulthood. Right? There are very few people who are able to hang on to that childlike heart and innocence of heart all the way to... There are just too many, too many disappointments. Right? Too many people let you down. It's, it's kids, it's family, it's friends, it's teachers, it's the boyfriend, it's the girlfriend, it's whatever. Somebody's going to blow it. And then, check. Innocence gone. Well, this morning, the, the person we're talking about has often been described, this disciple has been described as the disciple who comes to Jesus most childlike. And with that innocence. And um, I, I just want you to watch a, sh a really tiny, tiny film clip. It's, um, it's from the movie Risen, which we will be showing um, on the eve of Easter on the 15th. But I just want you to catch this little, little bit of a thing. Yahweh manifests himself through a crazy, poor, dead Jew. <laughs> well, so it appears. What does this rebirth mean? Eternal life. But for, for everyone. Everyone who believes. Marvelous recruiting tool. 
Much better than salt. How many are you? Well, we are few for now. And our only weapon is love. But this, well, this changes everything. That is the portrayal of Bartholomew. Nathaniel to John. Bartholomew's name we'll get to, but we're going to call him Nathaniel because Bartholomew just starts sounding like mule at the end to me every time I say it, and I just can't do it. So we're going to call him Nathaniel, which is an exchanged name, another name for him, as we've found a lot of these disciples have multiple names. But I love the way they portray him here. Um, I think Chris Cannis and I were talking about the fact that he's almost, he, he's almost like this, this happy hippie disciple in the movie. And, and it, it's, it's really not an inaccurate, according to the historical sort of perspectives, depiction of who this guy might have been. So I want to I catch the only passage that really mentions him other than his name. Um, in your Bible this morning, it's from John chapter 1. It's near the end of the chapter. It's beginning at verse 43. I'm going to actually pick up a little comment about Philip through the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bible with you, if you have your electronic device, if, you, if there's one in the pew back in front of you you want to use, feel free. If you don't have one, feel free to take one of those out of the pew back and take it home with you. Just write your name in it because we have a bunch of more that look just like it. This is the New King James Version. and This is how it starts. The following day. On the prior day, Jesus has picked up four fishermen, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And now the following day, Jesus wanted to go to to Galilee. And so Jesus is wandering off toward Galilee, toward the lake, and he he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, I, I, I love the word found. It's like it was an accident. He was walking along and he found a quarter, right? Isn't that how it sounds? It sounds like, oh, he stumbled upon Philip. I don't think Jesus stumbled upon any of these guys. I think he went to Galilee to get Philip. That's why he wanted to go to Galilee. He he was on a mission. He was going to get Philip. This wasn't accidental. But he found Philip. And he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, this famous line, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. King James says, no guile. No deceit. I've wondered if anybody would look across at us and say, Oh, look, here comes a person of no deceit, no guile. There's an innocence in that, isn't there? A person who has no secondary agenda. No guile. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? What I love about this is this is like Nathaniel saying, yeah, that's true. I'm that guy. How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Fathers, we talk a little bit about your word this morning. I pray that you would pour a blessing on us. As Peter has requested, as we have requested of you already, that you would fill this place, that this room and this campus might, might hold the heart of each person in the presence of your spirit, that you might fill us to hear you, to understand you, to be touched by you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're on this disciple with only two names. I'm glad we don't have to chase down four or five names or find out how he got to San Diego. But Bartholomew and Nathaniel, you had to, you had to be here for that one to catch it. So if, go back and look at James on the list of disciples on this series. You'll find the, how James got to San Diego. Bartholomew, or in the Greek, Bartholomeos, means son of Talmai. Son of Talmai. Talme means a furrow in the ground. You know, like you're plowing, you turn over the soil, it's called a furrow. This is the son of the furrow. Would you change your name? Maybe. Nathaniel means God has given. Would you choose that one over this one? See, here's the deal. In the, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's called Bartholomew each time. John never names him as Bartholomew. He always calls him Nathaniel. He always uses this term for him, this God has given term. Now, if you had someone among your 12 buddies who was truly without guile, who never came to you with, with a, a secondary agenda, never seemed to have the knife in his back pocket ready to pull it out, would you think of him as someone God had give, given to you, gifted you with? Would you rather call him by that name? See, John is written sometime later, decades after the, first of the, or the last of the Synoptic Gospels, and I think he simply is reflecting that attempt to show the personality of this man. Nathaniel. He's a young man in his 20s approximately. He's acquainted with John the Baptist's ministry. He's contemplating the Messianic prophecies. Because that's what, when, when, remember, when he's approached by Philip, that's the question. He's talking about the Messianic prophecies. He's from Cana in Galilee. So we picked up the last of the disciples we're going to talk about in this group of 12. The first, the initial group of 12. Did you notice that most of them are from the north? Most all of them are from somewhere around Galilee. They're from those communities and those neighborhoods right around Galilee. We've also found out that a bunch of them are related to each other. Right? Peter and Andrew, James and John. Maybe three sons of Alphaeus. Maybe Levi Matthew, son of Alphaeus. And we know James and Jude, the other two, James the lesser and Judas, not Judas Iscariot, are also sons of Alphaeus. So these, these people are, are acquainted, apparently, at least in some way with each other. Philip is connected with Nathaniel each time they're in the list. Every time the list of disciples is made, Philip and Nathaniel are named side by side. Philip goes to find Nathaniel, as we've just read in John 1. 
So you start recognizing that this group is not a complete group of strangers. It may be that the only one they didn't know or have some contact with was actually Judas Iscariot because he's from down in Judea. He may be the only stranger among the group at the time, the only one they didn't know well. And boy, there's a whole other story about that, right? Inviting uh, an unequally yoked partner into the interior of your partnership. Oh, man, you know, how many businesses have exploded on that one decision? How many families have exploded on that one decision? How many marriages have just dragged through years of turmoil on that one decision, bringing together the people who are unequally yoked? Judas was unequally yoked in this group. At least it appears that the others had some contact with each other. I give you this picture of Bartholomew. I kind of showed you uh, several of these statues. And I wanted to show you this one because when I first saw pictures of the Sistine Chapel, the picture, picture of Bartholomew freaked me out. Okay? The picture of Nathaniel in, in the statue kind of weirds me out. And this one here might weird you out a little bit too. Do you see that there's a face hanging there from his arm? And you see he's got a big knife in his hand? I told you, each of these statues represented how these various of the disciples are thought to have died. Bartholomew was, be- was crucified upside down and skinned. That's why every time you see him, he's carrying himself. Every picture of him, every, every ancient uh, statue or drawing of him looks something like that. The one on the Sistine, you look up the Sistine Chapel, you Google it when you get home today. Not right now, it will distract you. Google it when you get home today. Google Nathaniel or Bartholomew Sistine Chapel image. Okay? And you'll see why it really freaked me out the first time I saw it. It's just kind of this strange looking thing. But it's again one of those depictions. Why was he treated so badly? The story is he converted the king of the region around what we would today in modern day call northern Iraq. And when the king was converted, his brother had him killed. And so angry with him that he had him had his outside removed from his insides. Why are these guys all killed? Because they won't shut up about Jesus. Why is it that in one generation... The gospel went to the actual edges of the Roman world because they wouldn't shut up about Jesus. Same, Same reason. Same issue. Amazing result. You think about it. What impact it would have been for the king of your community, of your nation. This is a tribal king. The king to give his heart to Jesus. This may be the first one that we have record of where the disciple has testified to a king and he's converted to Christianity. So I want to start out at the beginning of of the descriptions we've said. Jesus finds Nathaniel. Nathaniel goes and, or Jesus finds Philip. Philip goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel may still be hanging out under the fig tree. Now, I need to stop about this fig tree thing for a second. Fig tree is two things. One, it's a fig tree. 
And definitely people use fig trees as coverings and places to, to hang out of. Have you ever been around a really old fig tree? One that's just been allowed to grow. And those things will grow and they'll, they'll take over half an acre if you let them. Because they just keep growing, kind of touching the ground and growing up again and touching the ground and growing up again. And they can just be enormous. So there are, there are certainly pictures of people in these hot climates, a climate like ours. Imagine July or, or August here in Sacramento when you wanted to go read. You wanted some place of relief from the intense heat inside your house. You go out you get under the fig tree where there's been shade all day. And there's a little bit of the, 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 the perspiration of the tree, that moisture that naturally flows out of a tree as it pulls it up from the roots, cooling the air just a little. There's definitely a use of fig trees and trees like that that are large and, and have big canopies as places of refuge to study. So number one could be a fig tree. Kind of nice to know. But in the first century in Judaism, they would use this term under the fig tree for I was studying. It's a euphemism for I had been studying. What were you doing today? I was out under the fig tree. That meant you'd been studying. You'd been reading because it was such a common place to go and do it that you might have been doing it in your house or by the creek or, you know, who knows where you were. But it was kind of a euphemism for I've been studying. I've been out reading and studying and and thinking. Well, it may have well been that when Jesus says to him, uh, well, you what I, I saw you under the fig tree. He may have just been saying, I saw you when you were studying. I was present when you were studying. I thought, stop and just let that settle in. I was present. When you were praying, I was present when you were studying. I saw you. I was there when you were studying. I was next to you when you were asking for help. I was listening when you were praying. I was there under the fig tree with you. I saw you. And it may just be that it was in the shade, kicking back against the tree, thinking about God. And you met him there. Either way, I saw you under the fig tree. Philip says, probably under that same fig tree, we found the Messiah. But he doesn't just say that. Did you you hear what he said? He said, we found the one of whom Moses and the prophets have written. We found him. His name is Jesus. And he's from the town of Nazareth. You know, just up the street. Just up the road from here. He's not far away. He's been here all along. Our own neighbor. We found him. Jesus of Nazareth. And Philip, who is without guile is apparently not without prejudice. Right? You you do realize you you can be superstar in this part of the fruits of the Spirit and lame-o at this part. Right? You can be really good at one part of the fruits of the Spirit. It just works for you. It makes sense to you. it, It applies. You can do it without thinking about it. And you can be terrible at this other part. Here's our guy, here's our guy, Nathaniel, who's who's without guile. And the first thing that comes to his mind is, are you kidding me? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, come on, Jerusalem maybe? Even Bethlehem, that's where David was born. But Nazareth? You're out of your mind. Anything? And there's the salt sprinkled out there for a fight. Right? Right? Couldn't you jump right immediately into this and start defending? No, 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 no. I, I, it's in the text and it's this and it's that. And I'd met him and I've talked to him and John Baptist said this about him. And, that. and you, you could go on and on and try to fight, right? He doesn't. He just says, come and see. Because the best argument for Jesus is Jesus. 
Now, if I can stop for a second, the best argument for Jesus is Jesus in the church. The problem is he's a little scarce. Can, can we admit all of that? That Jesus is a little scarce in the church? That, that, that when we, we look for examples of, of Jesus in the world, they're a little too rare? There, there's a, 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 a few, too few, representations where you look at a believer and you oh, yeah, that has got to be what Jesus is like. I used to have a church member, and his actual name was H-O. It wasn't spelled out, it was just H-O. And H-O was a saint. If ever I met a person who was a saint, he was that person. He was gentle. He was kind. He was personable. He was inspirational. People who knew this guy would talk about him almost in hushed tones. I happened to be talking about him to a friend, just in this kind of term. I have this guy in my church who's like, amazing. And this other friend of mine knew who I was, knew who he was by kind of reputation. He had met him as well. And he's like, yeah, that guy told me this and that and the other. And I said, do you believe it? He said, well, it was H.O. Somebody whose word was so believable simply because his life matched his words. Oh, that the entire church was that. I mean, half of my friends are preachers, and I'm telling you, it's tough there too. Because we're all struggling with the brokenness that lives inside of us to be a revelation of something that's unbroken. That's without disturbance. Wouldn't it be awesome if when people said Christian, they said it with hushed terms? Or when a Christian moved in next door to you, you were just so excited can't believe my good favor. I can't believe my good luck. A, a Christian actually moved in next door to me. Now, I'm not joining their church, but do you realize what this means? I can leave my door unlocked in my car. They might even mow my lawn once in a while. Yeah, they might come over and bring me cookies. You realize what my good fortune that a Christian moved in next door to me, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? Here is Philip. He's not taking the bait on the argument at all. He simply says, check it out for yourself. Come and see. The best argument for Jesus is Jesus himself. Come experience this for yourself. You look him in the eye and you decide. You talk to him, you figure it out. So for whatever reason, I don't Nathaniel trusts Philip. He gets up and he goes. And they head off, as far as Nathaniel is concerned, into this moment of, of, of sort of confusion. Is it true? Are the, are the Messianic prophecies really coming to fruit right here in, in, in Galilee, right here in my own neighborhood? Is somebody from Nazareth actually going to be the revealed Messiah? Can you believe my neighborhood? Somebody from my neighborhood could actually be the Messiah. And they head out. We don't have a record of the conversation. And it, it may not have been that far. It may not have been that long. We don't know. But the next frame, the next thing we see is this moment when they come together. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. And he said of him, Now note, if somebody's walking towards you and you're making a comment about them, either they're really close or you're saying it loudly. It sounds like Jesus raises his voice. So that Peter, James, John, Andrew, and Philip all hear the testimony that he's about to make about, and about Nathaniel. As he's walking up, Jesus says, Behold, someday, maybe this week, you should say, Behold, about something. Just see what happens in your office. Behold, the mail has come. Say it to your children. Behold, we will watch the news now. Just use the word behold because it's awesome and we never use it. Just behold. Behold. An Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now stop. Get a historical moment here. Who is Israel? What was his name? What does Jacob mean, those of you biblical scholars? What did Jacob mean? Deceiver. Behold, a son of Jacob in whom there is no deceit. Isn't that cool? Without the historical piece here, this text kind of loses some of its attachments. It loses its anchors because there's another piece at the end of this text that comes right back to Jacob again. But behold, a son of Jacob in whom there is no deceit. It took a long time. It took 1,400 years, but we got one. At last, a son of the deceiver in whom there is no deceit. What a powerful picture. The word here, I put the Greek on the, it, it's the, I love the old, I love the, the old King James, no guile. Because that word just has such a weight to it, right? Deceit, we can kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. Guile. It's a little more guttural, a little more visceral. Guile. There's no guile in this guy. He's a guileless guy. The Greek is dolos. And it means bait. You throw the bait out. What's inside the bait? A hook. Behold an Israelite who isn't trying to deceive me and hook me. That's what this is saying. Behold a person who has no mixed motivations for their approach to me. They're simply themselves. Sometimes, sometimes words like can anything good out of Naz- come out of Nazareth comes from people who are used to speaking clearly and plainly. Because sometimes they forget that there needs to be a filter on that. And out jumps one of their prejudices because they didn't have a filter for, whoa, I shouldn't do that. And they just say it. Now, would you rather have them say it or hold it in? Now, think about that before you answer it. Would you rather know, did these pants make my butt look big? Sometimes I say stuff in church that I probably shouldn't say. But you know what I'm saying, right? Men. Ladies, would you really want the right answer to that question? 
don't ask a question you don't want an answer for, and then don't get mad because you got the answer. Right? Are you lying to me? Oh, yeah. (laughs) How dare you lie to me? Don't ask your nine-year-old, are you lying to me? And he says yes, and then you get mad. Say, buddy, I'm really glad you straightened that out with me now. There will be some consequences, but right now, thank you for being honest with me. Thank you for letting this be straight. An Israelite in whom there is no duplicity. I, I, can, I can take an honest bite out of what he says and know he's not going to be reeling me in in a second. He's not going to deceive me. He's not going to manipulate There's a whole series of this word used in Greek for various settings under which someone, who is, someone is being deceived. It, it, the, the person who's gullible. There's a, there's a word here for the gullible being deceived. The person who is anxious for the answer to be what they have in their mind. There's a, there's a Greek word for that person being deceived. Playing on somebody and deceiving them. Behold an Israelite in which there is no guile. Guileless. Man, do we all wish we had this? I mean, to be able to be honest and gentle with people, stray with the facts, Gentle with people. To be able to present your heart in such a way that the person hearing you knew that this was what you actually believed and thought. Wow. How would that change your relationships? Is there anybody in your life who you feel like you can just lay it out there with? I've told you a a lot about a group of men that I spend time with. For over 20 years, I've been hanging out with the same small group. There's only three of us left. There have been up to five, but there are three of us left. Not because the others have died. They just moved away. I just thought I had to clear that up. (laughs) But I can tell those guys anything. It's it's an absolute, honest, be-yourself space. It's a place where I can just say, hey, this is what's going on in my life and I'm not loving it. Or this is going on and I'd like to celebrate it with you guys. You have to have that. Men, you are the ones who isolate. We are the ones who shove our feelings inside, screw on a lid, glue the lid on, and hide it in the back of the closet. And recognize that that was a lady's voice. Because we don't want to let that out. Some sign of weakness will come out. Something is going to happen if we let that out. You need some place to let that out. Do you, do you know what a pressure cooker is? And then you pop that little thing on the top and it goes all over the cabinet. That's what your life is without a place to let some of that go. And it can't be your wife. In that relationship, you have a role 
You need a relationship where you have no role. Other than just being. You need some men you can lay it on the line with who will chastise you when you need it out of the graciousness and honesty of their own hearts and who will uplift you, pray for you, talk to you, guide you, and be just as honest with you. Ladies, you are much better at this, but not all of you are good at it. Some of you are as bad as the guys. Some of you ladies do the same isolating thing. You don't want to let anybody in because if you let them in, they're going to find out about you and they're not going to like you anymore. You have to have a place where you can just be you. This is a spiritual requirement. This is what the word fellowship is all about. There are layers of fellowship. In here right now, we have fellowship. We have the fellowship of the believers. We have, there's a support we feel just in the numbers of people who are sitting around us. There's a support in knowing some names of people in this congregation. There's a layer of fellowship. There's a level of fellowship, but it's pretty thin. Right? It's pretty thin. But there should be somebody who you can take that to the next level with. In your family, in your home, with your spouse, with your children. You should be able to get deeper. There should be another group of people that you can just be with. Pastors are horrible at this because we are professionally good. And it's hard to be professionally good. And so some of you have seen the professionally not as good as I should have been side of me. I'm just saying to you right now, thank you. Because you haven't been talking about it. And your pastors need places to be. More than probably most, those of us who are in jobs where we have to be professionally good, if you're in charge of something, if you're a boss and you have to be professionally good, you need some place to go. To just, I'm not saying to go to be bad. <laughs> but I'm saying to go to be honest. To go to let it out. Let the pressure off that pressure cooker. So that guileless moment can happen where you can just relax and be. Someday our hearts will be true. And the, the chain of sin will be broken. And we will stand with God in fellowship with one another that is guileless. We just can be a place of that kind of security in your life is a tiny taste of heaven. If you don't have it, start looking for it. Get it. It may be a relative, it may be your brother, it may be your sister, but it needs to be someone. Two, three, four people. It can't be the opposite sex. Way too much intimacy in this conversation for it to be the opposite sex. But you need it desperately. A place where you can let go of the duplicity, duplicity of your normal life. Jesus says, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile, 
And maybe the other part of this is that he's not exactly humble. There's a little prejudice. And there's some lack of humility because he doesn't say, well, that was very nice. How kind of you. He says, you're right. That's me. How do you know that about me? How do you know that I'm that guy? That's awesome. Did you hear what he said, guys? He's right, right? You guys know. Right? That's me. I am absolutely guileless. Ain't I cool? So maybe a little prejudice, maybe a little pride, but guileless. Right? He's honest. He's not deceiving anybody. He says what he's thinking. You know somebody like this who says what they're thinking and sometimes you wish they wouldn't. I kind of get that impression of this guy. He kind of lets it out there. Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now he's known Jesus for exactly 30 seconds. Right? You know anybody who jumps into the boat first? Or jumps into the river first? Or jumps off the cliff first? Or how, whatever? They're just, hey, that's what we're doing? Okay, I'm in. And they go. Nathaniel is responding like that. He doesn't have a lot of information. He doesn't have a lot of background here. He's been thinking about the prophecies. He's been thinking about Jesus. He's been thinking about the coming of the Messiah. And he has some images in his head about how that's going to happen. And somehow in this moment, Jesus matches up with those images and he's in. He's totally in. Rabbi, teacher, you are the son of God. That's a straight up messianic statement. You are the Christ and you are the king of Israel. He is putting all of his messianic stuff in one basket. All of his messianic hopes in this one basket of a guy he's known for 30 seconds. Is this a little dangerous? Does this sound a little dangerous to you? I wonder sometimes if he's gotten on a lot of these trains before. Got on, jumped on the train, went, oop, wrong train. Let's try this train. Oh, oh yeah, oh, no, nope, wrong train. Is he just one of those people who gets into everything that's new? You know, Amway came along, he was in. Melaleuca came along, he was in. Whoever came along, they were in. You, you, right, you, you get into everything. New preacher comes to town, I'm in. He, this other preacher comes, I'm in. That guy says it's different from this guy, I'm in. New guy on TV, I'm in. There are always the people who say, hey, I found this amazing thing on TV, you've got to watch it. And you turn around and watch it and go, what's so amazing about this? Oh, you gotta, oh, you got to try this new show I saw. you got to come look at this. Oh. oh, I went to this restaurant. Ah. Oh. I just wonder if he's that guy. If he's 30 seconds in, he's calling Jesus the Messiah. Jesus says, do you believe this just because I told you I'd seen you under the fig tree? Now here I got, I've, I've got the two pictures for you, right? If it's an actual fig tree, could anybody have walked by and seen him under the fig tree? Pretty much, right? Unless he was hiding in there. So, pre, so literally, if this is an actual fig tree, Jesus could have wandered by, 
Saw him there. He comes. He says, hey, yeah, I, I know you. I saw you under the fig tree. Could be an actual statement of fact. Not what we believe it to be, which is a revelation of God to Jesus about Nathaniel. But how would Nathaniel know the difference? Only one thing. Here's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Because it doesn't speak to where he was, but who he is. So do you realize there's two big statements like this that we get called out? Does this sound familiar to you at all? There's another one. In Matthew chapter 16, all of the disciples are standing in a place called Caesarea Philippi. The Romans and the Greeks call it Banias. There at Caesarea Philippi, the, the River Jordan, one of the three headwaters of the River Jordan, comes up out of a cave and begins to flow down toward the valley. Still there. Along the wall where the river comes out, because it comes out of this cave, along that wall, there's a, this sheer cliff along that whole wall, the Greeks and the Romans have been building temples. And as you looked at the wall, Jesus standing there with his disciples, there's a, a temple to this God, and a temple to that God, and a temple to the other God, and they're all there. It gets its name from the God Pan. Do you recognize that name? Bon or Pan? It's a Greek God who's half animal, half person. Remember that one? It gets its name from that God. There's a huge temple built right over the entrance to the cave where the water sort of kind of feels like it's miraculously coming out from under the temple. Jesus says, who do men say that I am? In that context, looking at that wall, he says, guys, look at all that. The Greeks claim their gods are the ones who do everything. Gods of the land, gods of the water, gods of the sky. Who do men say that I am? And the disciples begin to respond. Some say you're Elijah, come back from the dead. Some say you're that prophet, which means a prophet like unto Moses. And Peter says, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus kind of says, easy, big fella. You're going to see a whole lot more than just I saw you under the fig tree. Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, you rock, Peter. In fact, we're calling you that from now on. <laughs> Seems a little unfair, doesn't it? But there's the uninformed decision. And there's the informed decision. On the one hand, you have a young man who's so excited and so enthralled about what has just happened to him the last 30 seconds. He just can't believe it. He jumps right to you. You've got to be the Messiah. And Jesus says, just wait. You're going to see a lot more. You're going to see so many more things. It's going to be phenomenal. And then after lots of that has gone by, years of testimony of the life of Jesus has gone by in front of the disciples, standing there at Banias that day, Peter says, you are the Christ. I've seen you act. I've heard your words. I've, I've touched the miracles that you've created. 
You are in fact the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, you've weighed what you've seen, you've studied, you've watched, you've thought about it, and you've understood, and you've come to the right answer. I don't think Nathaniel that day said, well, I said it first. I think Nathaniel sat that day and said, yeah, I have seen the proof of who Jesus is. Do you remember the, the first time you realized that you were following Jesus? The first time that, that that excitement popped up inside of you and you realized, hey, Jesus is cool. For me, that was a long time ago, almost 40 years. Over the years, the testimony of his actions in my life and the lives of others has made that initial understanding so shallow. And the depth of understanding that experience has brought along has been so powerful. If you have the opportunity to stand next to someone who's been walking with Jesus longer than you. Stay there long enough to find out what they've discovered. If you have the good blessing of God of standing next to someone who's been following Jesus less time than you, stay with them long enough to show them where at least the potholes are ahead. It's what happens as the faith of the believers is passed down from generation to generation. Let me end with the last thing. Jesus starts the conversation with, look, a son of the deceiver in whom there is no deceit. And he ends the conversation saying, do you remember when the deceiver was laying there that night with his head on a rock and he fell asleep And he saw the angels of God ascending and descending from heaven on a ladder. And he woke up and he rolled over and he poured some oil on the rock and he said, this must be the house of God. Do you remember that, guys? He said, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending around the Son of Man. That the true gateway to heaven is me. We've walked along with the disciples. We've seen the accountant-minded disciples. We've seen the speak-first, think-later disciples. We've seen the, the, the whole group, generations of unknown disciples. We've seen doubting disciples. We've seen what today might be the, what would you call them, the most honest-hearted of disciples. And there are many, many, many more. But in that first 12, do you find somebody you relate to? Is there somebody in this group that you kind of go, yeah, I'm more the accountant disciple, or I'm more the open-hearted disciple, I'm more the doubting disciple, I'm more the speak first and ask questions later disciple. Do you find yourself among the group? I hope you do. Because the point of looking at their lives 
is for each of us to understand that we are called to be disciples and we are just like them. Nobody here's got his act together or her act together. We're all figuring it out as we go along. We all need each other and we need to stand together in this walk. But the ultimate goal is to follow Jesus all the way home. Let's pray. Lord, our church began with a, a prophetic insight, not unlike this one. The Messiah leading the believers up a path all the way home. Father, we need to have that kind of leadership in our life this morning. We need the experience of following you. We need the growth that comes along with walking alongside. 